Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the um, the seventh class of our Truth of Happiness Dhamma study. I think Lucy is here for the first time. I think she's the only one today. Um, Lucy, this is um, this study that we're doing right now uh, is part of. Uh, uh, it comes from a book that I wrote called The Truth of Happiness, that is a companion uh, study to the, a larger volume uh, called Becoming Buddha, Becoming Awakened. Uh, and this study lays the foundation for ongoing Dhamma practice. Uh, the uh, The previous talks are on the website if you're uh, interested and want to catch up on them. Um, again, today is the seventh class. Um, so you've all done your homework, I'm sure. Uh, you've done your little bit of writing and you brought your questions to class. I know I never, ever in my life missed a homework assignment. I always did my homework. Um, so I'm going to read... Uh, since you all did read the chapter, uh, I'm going to read part of that chapter, but I want to introduce today's class by reading a section from uh, this uh, sutta called the Anatta Sutta. So this this week's class, we're looking at something called the three marks of existence or the three marks of human existence. The marks meaning these are something that uh, are significant to the Dhamma and touch every human being, meaning the impermanence of all things the anicca, the anatta, the not self-characteristic, but really, really means that uh, we have a misunderstanding of who and what we define a self by, and that results in stress and suffering or dukkha, uh, the three marks of existence, impermanence, the not self-characteristic, and resulting stress and suffering from not understanding uh, the first two. The, uh, the first three teachings the Buddha ever taught uh, called the, the Three Cardinal Discourses of the Buddha, uh, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the, uh, this sutta that I'm going to mention in just a moment, the Anatalakana Sutta, and the Adita Pariyaya Sutta. The first three suttas the Buddha ever taught teach uh, directly these three marks of existence. And I, they, I don't want to get too deep into that Three Cardinal Discourses. If you look up, uh, if you find them, out there in different publications, except on my my website, uh, you'll likely come across something that is somewhat or grossly misrepresented. Uh, but again, these three suttas speak to impermanence, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, or the Four Noble Truths, in a broad and general sense, speak directly to impermanence and change and awakening, recognizing where we are and, and using that recognition as a foundation. And that recognition is fine-tuned in the Anattalakana Sutta, meaning we're, we're here to understand what it is that actually constitutes a self. And again, the Buddha never taught that, there's, that the self is nothing or that we aspire to something called emptiness or nothingness. He, thought of, he taught that the self is something very clearly defined and easily understood. And then just to finish this little introduction, and then the Adita Pariyaya Sutta that we talk about in different ways uh, teaches the results of uh, ignorance that manifests as dukkha. So I'm going to read a little bit of the Anattalakana Sutta as an introduction and then a little bit from the chapter that you all read. Uh, and then with the understanding that this, uh, this study uh, lays this foundation and then leads to the establishment of the what, why, and, and how to study. So we started this study with understanding the method that we use, John and meditation, then uh, the next week, uh, we learn the Buddha's teachings and the four foundations of mindfulness of how to establish jhana meditation as our method. And then we learn in the broad application of what we're developing understanding of four noble truths. And then our last three classes were on the actual path that the Buddha taught, the only path on the Eightfold Path. So now this class is is introducing what is the focus? What are we supposed to be learning? What's the point? And then this leads into next week's class on dependent origination. And uh, actually, next week's class is broken into two parts. First, dependent origination, and then five clinging aggregates. 
we're going to touch on both of those in this week's too. So let me read a little bit of the Anatta Lakana Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying at Benares at Deer Park at Isipatana. There he addressed a group of five uh, bhikkhus, now bhikkhus. They, just, they have joined the, uh, the original Sangha. These were the five um, fellows that the Buddha befriended uh, while he was seeking enlightenment. All six of them wandered around northern India uh, seeking enlightenment. Um, a few months prior to this, the Buddha had abandoned uh, that search as ignoble. Um, and uh, and then he developed his awakening. We all understand that story. Uh, I teach it many times. And then he encountered these uh, these five friends uh, in the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the first time the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths in history. Um, and you remember from that sutta that Kandana awakened, and and the Buddha understood that Kandana now understood Four Noble Truths by Kandana saying that all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. What Kandana was telling the Buddha and everyone else there was he had a profound understanding of the three marks of existence. All conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. The Buddha said, you are now Anakandana, meaning the one who understands. And so a few weeks later, the Buddha now teaches this Anattalakana Sutta, Nearly every one of the Buddha suttas are situational, meaning the Buddha has a understanding of the confusion that might be present. And in this case, he notices that the um, the original five members of the Sangha are struggling with understanding what the self is. And they've been exposed to the same teachings that the Buddha was exposed to, uh, very similar to the things that those of us who have studied um, modern Buddhism and even um, uh, Hindu practices such as yoga will get into these um, these magical and mystical teachings uh, that confuse the original Sangha. And so the Buddha taught this sutta to address that, that notion that uh, of what actually constitute a self, constitutes itself, and address that the not-self characteristic, meaning the views that I'm holding of a self until I understand what it means to be a human being, constitute something that is that is not a self. And it is those views that the Buddha teaches to recognize and abandon as Dhamma practice. So, the Buddha begins, friends, or bhikkhus, form is not self, meaning what I identify with myself as, is not self. Excuse me. Were this form self, then that form would not lead to suffering. That is one of the most profound teachings the Buddha ever taught. And what he's saying is that if you are prone or if you are experiencing any level of stress and suffering in this moment, and that's an important distinction, in this moment, not from your memory or not from projection, in this moment, I am, I am experiencing something that I identify as stress or suffering, dis-ease, discontent. I have lost my mind in relation to the Dhamma. I am outside the framework of the Eightfold Path. This one line points us back to notice what's going on now, take a breath, and begin the process of in this moment of not taking what's occurring personally. I'm giving you a very broad uh, and rather wordy description of how to practice the Dhamma right here and right now. Recognize that whatever is occurring is not me, is not mine, this is not what I am. I'm going to read that again just to continue. Form is not self. Were form self, then this form would not lead to suffering. And one could have that form be, des be any form desired and be stress-free. So what does that mean? Again, when, when you understand this in the proper context, it's hard to understand how anybody could take the Buddhist teachings and apply them in any magical, mystical, otherworldly, or non-physical way. If the form were self, one could have that form be any way that we wanted it. In my case, when I started becoming self-aware, I realized that at five foot seven, I'm 13 years old now, 14 years old, I realized that this self, this form, could not support playing center field for the Yankees. And I became distressed and distracted from the fact that I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not as tall as Mickey Mantle was. 
And I know this might sound frivolous to those that have no interest in baseball, but those that base their whole lives on becoming center fielder for the Yankees, that's a pretty devastating thought that you're just not good enough. But we all encounter that thought in some one way or another in the course of our upbringing in our life. Whatever situation arises, we don't feel we're good enough, and we begin the process of self-loathing. And that process could even begin by being taught directly that there's things that if we're going to live successfully in the world, we have to acquire certain things or become a certain type of person. Rather than learn first who and what constitutes a human being and then build on that foundation, which is what we do in Dharma practice. Excuse me. So anytime we feel that in this moment, I must be, I recognize stress and I must be stress-free in that moment, the following thought from recognizing stress, we're continuing the process. So the recognition in this moment that I am caught up in a stressful experience eventually leads to the immediate response that, wait a minute, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. In other words, if I'm experiencing discontent in this moment, it's because I'm misidentifying with what's occurring. Since form is not self, it leads to suffering, and none can have it be any any form desired and be stress-free. So if I had understood this when I first had the thought that I need to be 6'4 to be happy, And I had the understanding, wait a minute, I cannot have this form be any way that I want. I would immediately, hopefully, begun the process of accepting who and what I was in that moment. And again, I'm using a rather, um, maybe not quite uh, direct reference, but it's a personal reference. It's me recognizing that I'm not good enough to be what I want to be in this life. And so I I think it relates. I cannot have this form be other anything that I want. And so this relates throughout life now. The sooner that I can accept that, and if I could have accepted it when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, which, which usually people at that age aren't capable of. Again, it's not a, I'm saying that because it's not a judgment. It's just a recognition of human life. Then what followed would have been stress-free. But because I couldn't, then the things that I... I came across in life that I needed to be in order to be happy or needed to avoid in order to to stay safe or stay happy became stressors when they were just simply a natural occurrence of having a human life. As the Buddha described, birth is stressful. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress. Not getting what is desired is stressful. Getting what is undesired is stressful. And then the Buddha would always conclude that by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness are stressful. And we're going to get deeper into this this week and and the next two weeks. Okay. Since form is not self, it leads to suffering, and none can have it be any form desired and be stress-free. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress. Don't take it personal. Bhikkhus, friends, us. Feeling is not self, as perceptions are not self. Fabrications are not self, and consciousness is not self. The rest of the five clinging aggregates. If these aggregates were self, then they would not lead to suffering, and one could direct these aggregates as one wished. Instead of getting lost in our feelings and our thoughts attached to our feelings, we would be able to have the, the, the concentration necessary to feel something without it directing a thought or directing an experience. As we learn in the Vitaka Santana Sutta, we would gain the ability to think what we want to think when we want to think it. Meaning from a mind well concentrated and now framed by the right view and the other factors of the Eightfold Path, I would think what's appropriate to what's occurring. In other words, when it's appropriate to be sad in this moment, I would be sad. I'm saying that to make a point and I'm pausing to make a point because those of us that fall into the trap that my feelings should only be one way, whatever I describe to myself as bliss or happiness or whatever else we think is the most important feeling, thereby discounting all the rest of humanity. Now I'm learning that, wait a minute, it's okay to be sad. When I heard that a a loved one died and I feel this this great anguish, I can take meaning in the feeling rather than insist it be anything different or blame something or someone 
for the feeling or the fact that, that this person died or something else, or I lost a job, or I didn't win the lottery, or I got to wait another day for my new car, or my meditation class in person was canceled. All these disappointments that we react to because we take them personal, now they'll just be the, the fabric of our life. They'll be, they'll be meaningful because in the moment they're appropriate to what's occurring. So when something occurs that brings great joy, I won't take it personal and I won't attach myself to the, to the occasion of the joy rather than what, is, what the experience actually is. And so an argument will not be something I need to get through immediately and I can stay and be present with the, the discontent and understand from it rather than have to leave this moment because it is stressful. Okay. Since these are not self, they don't constitute what a, what a self actually is, they can only lead to suffering, and no one can have any of these aggregates be as they wish. In the moment, when I'm caught up in a feeling and I've identified with the feeling, I cannot change it because of clinging. And what we'll learn next week, and those that have, that have heard dependent origination, as it's meant to be, will understand that process of clinging leads directly to maintaining. Once I've attached myself to something, an event, an idea, now I am prone to maintaining that because of the self-identification, clinging, maintaining, the seventh and eighth factors of dependent origination. Again, don't start looking through your memory for that. We're going to get into that next week. So bhikkhus, how do you perceive this? Is form permanent or impermanent? And then the five replied to them, form is impermanent, venerable sir. Kevin should be here because he always says that very well. Now, is what is impermanent painful or pleasant? It is always painful, venerable sir. Now, is what is impermanent, what is painful since subject to change, is this fit to be regarded as this is mine, this is myself? No, it's not. So the Buddha is teaching us in, this, in the second sutta he ever taught that anything that is impermanent is, is to not be identified as me or mine. Anything. And what do we know just as um, mindful human beings forget the Dhamma? Everything is impermanent. But a mind rooted in ignorance will, will grasp after and try to maintain something that is impermanent as permanent, especially once we identify with it, including this form. Excuse me. And this is why when there's any change in this form, there is distress. When I get a cold, it, it surprised me when I started thinking about these things that I realized that when I got sick, even a mild cold, in that moment, I felt like I was always going to feel sick. And I couldn't wait to get out of that rather than just understand it's a temporary condition. This also applies to mental states or physical states that, that are impermanent, but that I relish, such as tomorrow I'm getting a brand new Lamborghini. So I'm out of my moment and I'm into tomorrow because of that anticipation. Anything that is impermanent is prone to stress. But it's only prone to stress if I identify with it, if I attach myself to what is impermanent. So again, we, we can apply this immediately to everything that's gross out there. But ultimately, and the most intimate application of what we're talking about here is my own thoughts. And I'll fine tune fine tune that even a little bit further to this thought that I'm having now. And when this thought is pure, when it's liberated from fabricated views, this one thought, whatever that thought might be, now I am liberated. Now I am free. Now my mind is calm and at peace. Now I am an awakened human being. So we start applying, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit of the chapter in just a moment. So we start applying these understandings about impermanence, the not-self characteristic, and the stress that results from that misunderstanding of these two. First, in a broad way. And how do we do that? We learned last week, or two weeks ago, through right speech, right action, and right livelihood, through the, the virtuous factors. Because this is where what I'm holding in mind is presenting itself, through my speech and through my actions. I can recognize that. And as we learned, as we were learning, as we went through those, the Eightfold Path classes, we start pointing that back on ourselves. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. 
And that one thought begins the process of interrupting ongoing ignorance of Four Noble Truths. It begins the process of restoring our minds to its prior state, or its pristine state, I should say, not really a prior state, to its pristine state of understanding Four Noble Truths. Okay, let me just, I just want to read a little bit out of the chapter uh, that you all read this week. I know I keep saying that, I hope you did. Uh, And this is about a third of the way through. Impermanence is the pervasive overarching experience of all life in the phenomenal world. Again, the reference to the phenomenal world simply means the world... An impermanent world is characterized by phenomena, meaning an endless series of things that arise and pass away. It's all phenomena. And in that way, even uh, an individual breath is a phenomena of the world. By clinging to form of the, the form of by clinging to form an ego self of an ego self, I'm sorry, by clinging to form of an ego self, stress is experienced within the environment of impermanence through perception and feeling. So this thing called an ego self or an ego personality is is also um, the, the euphemism for the not self characteristic. So again, we have to get out of the psychological applications that some of us might have studied and getting into the idea of the ego or the id. And this is not to discount um, uh, psychological or psychiatric science. It's just something different. The ego personality establishes and maintains itself by clinging to impermanent objects and experiences. It is the ego personality that is subject to unhappiness and stress. It is the ego personality that is associated with a physical form that is interpreted through consciousness. So we get all these things mixed up and we, we tend to call them the ego and the way that we think and the way that we look at ourselves as this is my ego personality. And if we start getting into psychological studies, we might start um, becoming enamored with our own ego personality and, and feel that it should be manipulated rather than recognized and abandoned. And again, I don't want to shock some people, uh, but this is what we're talking about. These fabricated views of self that often are described as the ego personality are rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And so they're a liability towards liberation. They're to be recognized and abandoned, not worshipped. And we tend to worship the things that we most identify with as necessary. And it is those things that are causing the most pain and stress, the most pain and suffering in our lives. The idea that I need to be 6'4 to be a, a successful human being, to have a good life, or anything else. That I need to have $100,000 in the bank, or $5 in the bank, or the right friend, or the right spouse, or the right house, or the right neighborhood, or the right meditation teacher, etc., etc., etc. Or I have to avoid the wrong this and the wrong that and the wrong neighborhood and the wrong bridge to live under, whatever it might be. And we all do it because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Uh, just to make a point, we've all seen people who have um, fulfilled the so-called American dream or the human dream in some way and established themselves as um, rich and powerful or both and are often miserable in their lives, or petty in their lives, or angry in their lives. And we might even wonder, gee, that guy's got everything, or that person, that woman, you know, got to be careful today, they got everything. Why are they so unhappy? Because It's very simple, because they don't understand what it means to be a human being. And we've all seen people that are, that are um, at the other le- end of the economic scale, that are extremely happy, meaning they don't, they, don't, they don't have a pot, to use that phrase. And they're happy. And they're somewhat content. They might be struggling in their life. Why is that? It's because they're not so identifying with their experience where that other person is. They're identified with their position. And so that position is causing stress. I identified with the position of being 5'7 or 5'8. It caused stress. When the fact of the matter was... I was a 5'8 human being who could not be anything other than 5'8. But what could I change? What could I change? 
the notion that I should be 5'8", or, or that I should be 6'4", or that I must be 6'4", or that I must be smarter, or I must be, and this is really getting into something that I may or may not talk about, I must be female rather than male, or I must be male rather than female, or I must have hair that gets me past 66. Again, I'm using a lot of different examples. All of those take me out of simply being content for being who and what I am. And why is that so profound? So profound because I can't be anything other than what I am. No matter how much I want to be, no matter how much I might pray or visualize myself in a future life, I can't be that. I can only be what I am in this moment. And this is why any thought, any so-called spiritual practice, and this is my own experience, it may not be others, it might not even be yours, but any so-called spiritual practice that teaches me that I can only be better outside or past this life is hurtful. And it must be recognized as a fabrication and abandoned. This is what I realized when I first came to what I, what I understood as the Buddha's Dhamma. Because up until that time, I was taught that this life was merely, at best, was merely a stepping stone to something better. And that one idea causes any human being that buys into that notion to dismiss the importance and the meaning of this life. Because as Siddhartha Gautama realized and taught us all for 2,600 years now, this is the one we get. This is the one we're living now. Pay attention and live it fully. And how do we do it? Through jhana meditation and an eightfold path. This combination of consciousness and form is known as nama rupa. Nama rupa means name and form. It means identifying with this form and identifying with the things that are carried through this form that maintain the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering. Beginning with form, it's feeling, identifying with our feelings. And then it's perceptions, our thoughts about those feelings. And from those perceptions, we form fabrications. A, a, a mental construct, which is now a corrupted view of our life, because it's rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, that is feeding the fifth aggregate of consciousness. Consciousness meaning ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Notice I'm not referring to some grand cosmic consciousness. And I'm not referring to, to, the, to an idea of a grand cosmic consciousness because there is no such thing in the Dhamma. And the idea of a grand cosmic consciousness should be dismissed as quickly or abandoned as quickly as the idea of salvation in the future. And recognize that it is in this moment the focus of my Dhamma practice is on understanding what it means to be a human being within this ever-changing environment and in this moment prone to five clinging aggregates. And now just to lead into next week's class, Dependent Origination, which states, from ignorance of four noble truths comes fabrications. And from fabrications comes consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. So now you see how this ongoing personal experience of identifying with form Nama Rupa, self-identification with this is me, leads to the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering, which is what we're going to get to in the next two classes in this, uh, this series, Truth of Happiness, Dhamma Study. So that's today's class. I want to hear what, uh, what you've all um, discovered from your, from your homework. I know I keep com coming back to that. I'm just giving you all a nudge. If you're not following along, that to, to please do so. You'll just get more out of it. And... Uh, I'm going to save our teachers to last, and I'm going to start with, um, yeah, let me get this off screen, excuse me for a moment. Um, let me start with Brian. Good morning, Brian. Morning, John. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I have this not-so-great analogy in my head of the three marks of existence being this, this three-sided coin, and you, you just, it's a terrible Please. analogy, but you can't unseparate the three things and you can't yeah. have you can't have an ego personality in an impermanent environment that does not suffer That's they're right. just they're so tied together um it's it's fascinating and, and once i started to see that that interrelationship it just gets easier and easier and easier to abandon the views and the the attachments to that that yes. ego personality which reduce the suffering 
and just accept things as they are. And it's, it's a, a fantastic transition to go through. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. You almost got me jumping off my seat because you're describing the, the, the true Vipassana. It is insight into these three marks of existence, Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha, that the entire, excuse me, the entire Dhamma is about. We have a, uh, a study that we've done twice, and we're going to do it again this year, called Vipassana, Introspective Insight into These Three Marks of Existence. It's a 30 semi class structured study. And it, it is designed to specifically do what you just said, Brian. Understand the interrelationship between these three things. And again, it's, it's in the truth of happiness because this is, this is the key to what we're doing. This is why we're Dhamma practitioners, to understand something that on its surface seems almost absurd to put much effort into. Huh? Impermanence, what it means to be a human being and the resulting stress and suffering. But look at this clearly, as Brian just described. This is the human experience. This is it. Uh, Chris, welcome to our, our online song. I spoke with Chris a few times, but it's nice to see you. Um, and uh, what do you think about... Oh, let me say, Chris, before you come on, because I didn't point this out to you. Uh, this is... Uh, I keep getting this pop-up. This... Uh, I did say this earlier. Uh, the, the Truth of Happiness is a is a study that we do here once a year in our saga. You and um, and Lucy are coming in uh, in the middle of it, but the talks are online. You can go back and uh, uh, and catch up on it. And I would suggest that if you're going to um, learn through us through Crossover Meditation Song and what we're teaching here, to to go through this course, and we can talk about that individually too. But Chris, good morning. Welcome to our sanga. Thank you, John. This is that was a uh, great, great lecture and great meditation. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm, I'm loving it so far. Good. Uh, really fantastic. Yeah, that that enthusiasm goes a long way, you know. That uh, so I, keep it up. And uh, it, uh, one thing I think I've said it to you in a few emails: be very gentle with yourself and with your dharma practice. And all that this really takes to develop it is continued right effort. So again, welcome to our sangha. Thank you, Adam. Good morning. Yep. Okay. Um, thank you, uh, John. Uh, thank you for this whole course. I mean, the past three chapters, three weeks, um, have really been, for me, um, an untangling of uh, self and not self. You know, like, like some other people in this, uh, in this sangha, I went through the self-inflicted intellectual abuse of modern Buddhism for, for a long time. And, uh, you know, yes, uh, I understand you need to be a little more gentle on myself in that respect. But what I'm getting from, uh, from this, this, this chapter in particular is, you know, the, um, the idea of the not-self um, uh, being this accumulation of, uh, you know, of, of things brought about by the five being aggregates. Yep. And uh, really kind of untangling all of that and, and, and using... John meditation as the as a tool to, to step back and, and look at it and see them see those those aggregates kind of arise. Yeah, that's a, that's um, the point and, of John. And then watch them pass away in real time as they return to the breath. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. And again, Adam, thank you. That's great insight. That's the point of Jana. Again, nothing magical or mystical. So my mind is concentrated enough so I can see what I'm doing. So I can watch myself. It's just it's just like that. And it's when you start understanding, you know, this is why I say it's it's a very simple practice and people say, no, it's not. But it, it is in its simplicity. There's a lot to, to wade through to get to this point. But that's just because of our complicated minds. It's not an aspect of the Dhamma that it's hard to see. It's hard to see because of the way that I think about myself. That it's really, when we get to this level that we're talking about, it really contradicts everything that I've held about myself up until this point. So, thank you, Adam. Good morning, Becky. <coughs> Excuse me. Good morning, Becky. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, John. That was that was a very. It was a it was a teaching that was very engrossing this morning. I really found myself really listening to what what you had to say and 
I have to admit, I still have trouble with the the words not self-characteristic. And the thing that helps me the most to realize what's meant by those words is don't take things personally. And I find that when I have any kind of something arising in a in a daily situation where the rubber meets the road that the idea of not taking it personally is something that brings me back to myself the easiest and the fastest yeah that's right and i feel then that i can say okay don't take it personally you're a fully mature human being and this is and you are a reference point for this yes, yes, for what yes. is happening and that um in my daily life is the thing that is most helpful in keeping me i want to say on an even keel but actually it's keeping me sort of in the dama Yeah. Although, you know, you're going in and out, in and out, in and out, but to get back to where I I feel calm, that that's the thing that helps me the most. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. thank you, Betty. Well well said. Uh, Becky, jeez. Um <laughs> the the word anatta, this is where you can when it, it many people that start studying the dhammas to start uh, almost um transferring their dhamma practice to a practice of the Pali language. So I'm just getting to the word anatta. Anatta is almost always explained in relation to its definition in the Pali language or Pali or Sanskrit language. And and those are interpretive languages, meaning that one word can have an infinite number of meanings depending on the context and the application. But anatta is usually taken to be not atta, meaning an atta is even... Um, uh, translated differently, but usually means either the higher a higher being, meaning an overarching God, or the higher self. And so, anatta in that that typical translation means means um, that there that you're not this thing at all. There's nothing. There's no such thing as the self. And so, the interpretation or the mistranslation of the self into nothingness or, or emptiness, where the Buddha simply used a common word of his time. Anatta in a in a completely unordinary way, even contradictory, meaning just to say, anatta means not self. The views you're holding of a self do not do not constitute a self. They're wrong views. Let go of the self. That's all. Let go of the views, and what's left is the right view of self. You know, so thank you, Becky. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. Morning, everybody. Um, like Becky said, this was a very engrossing, um, talk and teaching. Thank you so much. I find that, um, during this talk, especially there are moments where I felt excited to live a life with this sort of clarity. And then of course I'm like, Oh, I hope I'm not clinging to that idea or (laughs) creating. That's John, the skillful desire. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, Wow, the the idea that you are a reference point, Becky, that you said I wrote that down, that is that is so clear to me, and that really resonated. Yeah. And then, John, with your uh, saying that you know it's okay to be sad and to experience negative emotions, yeah. um, you know, there's stress that's a result of clinging and craving, and then once you get rid of those notions, they're still going to be stressful things that you experience, but you can experience those from that reference point in a skillful way um, just makes a lot of sense to me. So I hope that what I'm thinking is correct and in alignment with your teaching. But um, It is. Yeah, it's just... I guess I, I know it's too early for the credits, but I do have to... Uh, I do have to credit John with that reference point. That That is John's... That is John's word, and... And it always resonated very much with me too when when he said it. 
Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, so much, John. Thank you. Thank you all for, for giving me credit. But if you're going to give me credit, I got to send it back 2,600 years ago because I didn't figure this out. You know, somebody else did. But And I give you credit, Becky, for putting in the right effort all these years to be able to say it now in this class and so support Lauren. Because you're the one that said it today. And that's, that's the important point. You know, this is, this is how a well-focused, well-informed sangha works. It's not just me. It, 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 it's just a perfect example of the triple refuge. It's not the Buddha, but he's still represented well here, isn't it? And it's not his Dhamma, just. It's also a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. And this is such a perfect example of how well it works. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, everyone. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, John. Good morning, all. Um, I think I have to give credit also this morning because what I took from this lesson, uh, everyone is uh, is saying so well, uh, especially Adam and John, which is that what I'm realizing is this is not just a practice of developing concentration and sitting on a cushion, but that is a tool, as we're learning in these lessons, for recognizing what we are and what we are not. Um, yes. and, uh, and thank you both and, and all the teachers for making that clear. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Matteo. Hi, everybody. Uh, well, I will be very briefly. That's, that's the reason why I keep coming back into this Sangha and follow you. It's just because they are the only one that you can explain what Anatan really means you know so it's like it, 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 it's a very simple concept but nobody so far was able to explain and then I find you so you you want me yeah. well done <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah this is this is the understanding that changed everything up until I came to just a uh, let me call it this way an opening understanding of what the Buddha was getting at I was always trying to fix a broken self I, my whole purpose in my spiritual studies and then Buddhist studies and traveling all over the world and meeting some incredibly wonderful Buddhist teachers was to fix a broken self, was to become a six foot four person when I'm five foot eight, now probably five six, always. And so I, the liberation of realizing that this is what I am and it's, and it's all I can ever be. It's not even that my next word was going to be and, and that's okay. It's not even that this is what I am and it's okay. This is what I am, Period. The judgment that I'm okay, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, isn't that that doesn't even enter into it. This is a reference. What, do, what when we think of the Buddha? What do we think of the Buddha? Hopefully, you think of me this way too, with sitting in meditation with eyes closed. What is that? That's a reference point to what's occurring. It's an example that we set for ourselves in jhana meditation. This is life. It's not that. It's not grasping after everything. What do I want? What do I need? It's this. And then every moment is pleasant, no matter what it is, even if it's a sad moment. Again, to get into it, Lauren, Lauren really got that today. That Those are the moments, I, I, I'll, I'll say this again, I know I've talked about it in class, but just to make this point again, my dad was 101 when he died about 18 months ago. And you know, we were very close. He was really my best friend throughout his life. And I would see him often, usually see him about once a week until I, I stopped being able to drive. But I would stay in touch with him. But at that point that he died, I hadn't talked to him in a couple of weeks. And so he died. And now I'm going to go see him at the, in the, at the funeral, at the wake. And um, the first death I ever had, just to put this into perspective, I won't keep you all too long. The first time I experienced death was my best friend, who was really like a brother to me, uh, died unexpectedly with, over, in his sleep one night uh, at 14 years old. And I still remember walking into the church. We had, I went to a little Catholic church. Um, and I, I'm still right today, this is 52 years later, I still remember walking into the front door of the church and seeing his casket at the front of the church and just being shocked and, and stunned. And, uh, and my first thought was, I'm going to have to see my parents this way someday. And it was just a devastating thought. So now, you know, fast forward 51 years later, and I'm walking into my father's wake, and I was, I was impressively sad. I was profoundly sad. But I didn't need that moment to be any different than it was. It was a sadness, not of aversion, 
but it was a sadness that was rooted in a great appreciation for simply how, who this man was. That's it. And so I, I, and I'm looking around and I'm seeing everybody, you could say, appropriately upset. And it was just this profound feeling of appreciation for who this man was. And it was one of the most profound experiences I ever had in my life. Not because it was my father's wake. It was because I was present for something so important. That, and again, that, 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 that's pure Dhamma practice. But again, not to, not to apply it to only special moments. It's being present right here, right now, on January 29th at 9.40 a.m. for you to have this experience. I'm going to throw it back to Lauren. Lauren, you brought yourself to this present moment and afford yourself the opportunity for that insight you just developed. And we all have done that right here and right now by being present for our life as our life unfolds. So let me get on to Dustin. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning, John. Um, I just had a realization during this teaching that um, when I was growing up, I was always considered moody and... Um, I always had too many feelings and, you know, I always got offended a lot, which caused a lot of suffering. But my brother, my older brother, he was always happy. It appeared that he was happy. And at one point I asked him, I said, how are you happy all the time? You know, we come from the same background. And he said, well, I just, I just anticipate everything in the future. The next movie that's coming out, the next pair of Air Jordans they're making, he lived in that state of anticipation and appeared to be happy. Yeah. But he, you know, his physical body hurts. He's overweight. He's got a lot of issues you can see that he's just not paying attention to because he lives in this anticipation. Yeah. So I always thought I was wrong because I would feel feelings. Yeah. Or I would, you know, go with the mood of, of how I was. And I was made fun of a lot for having feelings and feeling. Um, offended a lot, which that drove me to where I am right now, to this teaching and, and you know, experiencing not happiness, but just being present. Yes. Contentment, I guess, is what. Yeah. So he's misled, I guess, in a way, but that's his distraction. Yep. It's hard in the world. Nobody really knows how to be content or happy. They use a lot of times just distraction. So that's what I realized today. Yeah. It, it, Dustin, again, it, it, it really is um, what a powerful class. The uh, I don't mean to make this all about me, but my my mom used to listen to a, a radio show. I still remember it on WOR radio. Came on at three thirty, so it was when I walked in the door from school uh, from Carlton Fredericks, and his whole thing was the power of positive thinking. And I, generations have grown up with that belief that. That we, if we're going to think at all, it should be positive thinking. And what Dustin just described is a result of that, of that, of worshiping the idea of positive thinking. That every thought that I should have must be positive, and that those, those, the, the, these thoughts rooted in positivity will always manifest as positive experiences. And again, they never do, do they? So it's, it, is, it is the ultimate in fabrication to think that way. What we, what we understand is that what is occurring especially what's occurring within me is a reference point to what's occurring. Rather than grasping after the need to be six foot four or something else in the future, this moment, and this moment is the only moment I can ever live. This moment is the edge of eternity, not something, you know, something fabricated. If I really want to live in that, in the eternal moment or in eternity, I'll rest my mind here, right here and right now, instead of all the things I might get out of life. Because again, I've just lost my mind. Thank you, Dustin. That was important. Nina, good morning. Morning. Um, I um, admittedly did not read the chapter this week. Out. Out. I know, I know. But I have like um, some really, really big things happening in my life during this week. And... Um, I'm super thankful for the Dhamma this week and I'm super aware of my progress this week because the opportunities in the situations I'm putting myself in this week for overreaction and massive stress 
is just not happening. Yeah, isn't that and great? I, my emotions and my feelings attached to what's going on are appropriate in the moment, and then they go away. Yeah. So there isn't this like cumulative effect that I used to have of things. It's like I can deal with the big things as they're happening. Yes. So this teaching comes at a really good time. Yeah, thank you. You know, it, I mean, it, it really is true stress reduction, isn't it? That in that way, because we just don't drag yeah, stuff around just, us. Um, awareness. Yeah. You know, it's profound awareness. It's huge. Yeah, it, it, again, it, it's worth the price of admission, isn't it? It really is. It is. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm talking about the money for class. I'm talking about the effort we put in. It, it, it because it is truly liberating. It actually brings what it, it promises it's going to bring. But thank you, Nina. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, everyone. Uh, what a good class. Uh, the Dhamma meets you where you are, that's for sure. So anybody who's starting in the middle or whatever, you're not really starting in the middle, you're starting where you are. And uh, that's the beginning. Um, so welcome to some of our new people. Um, I actually thought Brian's analogy was helpful to me, the mm. three sides of a coin that that was really helpful because I think understanding the three marks is really, um, I say this often, but foundational to understanding the whole concept of this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am. Um, and that's very profound, um, not only on the cushion or in this class, but when you get off the cushion and going out into your life, as um, Nina just described, that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am. And therefore, I don't have to be self-referential. I don't have to be the center yeah. of what's going on all around me. Um, and I don't have to cling or think about things being, wanting things to be different than they are. I find that very useful in my life you know, every day, every week. So thank you, John, for this teaching. Thank you, Mary, for your teaching just now. Lucy, welcome to our Sangha. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your teaching. It was really, um, gave me a lot to think about. <clears throat> yeah. So um, I didn't mean, did you have anything else you'd like to say, Lucy? Um. No, I think the only thing that I've been thinking about while you've been talking too is is how important that this is not just learning something, but that it's a practice. Yes, and it's something yeah. that you have to sort of reinforce every day or every you know every once in a while, and that it's not something you learn, but that you sort of continue to practice all the time. Yeah, did you notice all the all the, the wagging heads when you were saying that? <laughs> because yeah, I mean, that, as all things that human beings learn, we first learn intellectually, but like most people don't do, we now apply what we're, what we're learning here and in a very direct way. Nina really described it, but we all described practicing the Dhamma at the point of contact because there's, there's nothing of, of value or not much of value to just hear it. But when you right. apply it and you see that it works, then your Dhamma practice becomes self-encouraging. And then you, you develop, as the Buddha described his, his own development, you become rightly self-awakened. It's up to us to do this. You know, you can learn it, but we apply it. So, uh, again, welcome to our Sangha, Lucy. Thank uh, you. I would encourage you to go on the website, start with the welcome page, um, and let that lead your study. And always feel free to, to uh, send me an email if you have any questions or any confusion. Always available okay, to will. you. Okay, Thank you. Please. Good morning, Brett. All right. Oh, okay. Hey, Brett. How are you? All right, how are you? Good. Uh, thank you for letting me back in. I was having some serious technical issues again. I don't yeah. know why. I'm actually fairly okay with Zoom, but this week it didn't go up. Um, I just uh, I enjoyed the talk. Thank you so much. I have a considerable gratitude, I guess, is my main message. Because what people are saying, uh, just resonating, resonating, resonating. And it so applies, not just to your meditation, but also to being able to get off the pillow and help yes. incorporate it into your life. Yeah. And uh, so I, I really like the idea of not overreacting to massive stress. I forget who said that. Because um, I've been going through a, a 
pretty radical transition into my work life. So, and uh, so I certainly can identify with that because that can be uh, that a change of that magnitude is rough. Yeah, uh, or it can be rough if you allow it to be rough. I guess I should say. Um, yeah. But it is a challenge one way or the other. And uh, but anyway, just thank you for this. The, this I, I enjoy your teaching on Anata too. I think you you stated as succinctly as I've ever heard it, uh, and clearly. So I appreciate that, and thank you. That's that's really all I have. Uh, thank you, Brett. Thank you for joining and for your contribution to our saga. That the, again, this is this your what you're doing is that third aspect of the three jewels, the triple refuge, and it's so important. So again, thank you for for joining us. Um, I think. As well as I can see, I think David had to had to drop off. So let's go to Ram. Dama teacher Ram. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's because of a misunderstanding and a compulsive need to, to uh, provide some type of resolution for these three marks that dependent origination has been um, corrupted to, to mean interconnectedness or interdependence when the, the sutta does not imply any, any type of connection except to point this out, the interconnectedness of these three things. But... Uh, it, that that misunderstanding is the basic misunderstanding that human beings have always had. Why can't I figure this out? You know, I, I don't understand who I am. I don't understand why that saber-toothed tiger is chasing me down. I uh, hope I get to my hut on time. That type of self-referential fear is, is what has driven humanity since the beginning, since we walked this planet, I would imagine. And now we understand it. And, be, and it's only through understanding that we can stop taking things personal, but that makes sense, doesn't it? And Becky referenced it, she referenced a lot of good stuff today, Becky. A, a awakening means full human maturity. And that's what a person who is mature, even if it's just a mature about a subject, your mind is calm because you're, you understand it, you're mature about it. Right, mature Dhamma teacher, Jen? That's right, that's right. <laughs> Um, Ron, were you finished? I feel like, okay. Um, uh, so this, yeah, John said it before. This is a powerful class. Very profound. Um, I'm feeling a lot of, I have a few things to say, but I, first of all, want to say that I'm feeling a lot of gratitude to be a part of this Sangha. Me too. And, um, really really thankful for each and every one of you all of your comments all of your right effort um it's a relief it's a real relief um so and and john you know thank you for your unwavering mm-hmm. consistency and structure um for all of us and it's just been a joy to watch you know to the list like watch everybody's progress and mm-hmm. to listen to these comments um Something that has come through or come up for me this week, I think, 
that is sort of relates to like what a lot of people were saying was um, this idea that um, uh, this wrong view that I have noticed that things have to be certain in order to be calm and at peace. And I, I've just realized that it's, it's this kind of lie that I've been carrying around for uh, my whole life that I'm sure we all have. That, that's, that's impermanence and the not-self. Yep. The not-self saying things have to be permanent and the reality that nothing is permanent. So there's no certainty and yet somehow I'm telling myself that something has to be certain in order for me to be calm and at peace. Yeah. And um, I think recognizing uncertainty is a lot easier with, with as your pra- as my practice has progressed, as anyone's practice has progressed, it's sort of like it's easier to recognize impermanence in, in sort of mundane little things and then more it gets easier and easier and easier. Maybe your work life makes more sense. Maybe your, your interpersonal relationships start to make more sense. But then when it really comes to like physical form being impermanent, I mean, right now y'all I'm in like my late forties. So I'm literally going through the change. So (laughs) physical form being impermanent for all of us, you know, we need our people to live forever. That certainty, that, that, the, the lie that we're all telling ourselves and that our community is telling us that we need things to stay the way they are in order for us to be calm and at peace. It has been a real relief to start to let that go this week yeah. and to say to myself, wow, it doesn't have to be certain. Yeah. It can be uncertain. And I can still be calm and at peace. Look, it's uncertain, and I'm calm and at peace. So that's sort of what I've been recognizing this week. And I think what Dustin said, when, I th- and what John was saying, when, when I feel like I've always had a handle for my whole life since I was a kid on, on impermanence. I think I've always known that that's there. And so when somebody says to you, oh, you know, that's not going to happen. Oh, you're not, you're not going to, you know, don't worry about that. That thing that, you know, that won't happen. Or, or, you know, you won't, you won't have to deal with that. You might. And it's okay. (laughs) And that's where like I, the whole mass drops away. Because you're not trying to tell yourself that something is certain. That's been my experience this week. Outstanding, Jen, Dhamma teacher. Jen, the only thing that we as Dhamma practitioners should be certain about is uncertainty. It's coming up. It's right around the corner. Um, What a a great class. But this sutta, uh, the one that I read, I only read a part of it, uh, the Anattalakana Sutta, is one of those suttas. We almost always do this sutta on uh, Saturday night of our residential retreats, and we will again this year. Uh, and I've seen, I've seen people's eyes. I've seen them get it uh, just listening to this sutta. Um, I would ask all of you too to go on the website if you got a minute today and, and just reread the Bahia Sutta. It's linked right on the the uh, home page because that gets to the heart of this idea of this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Uh, we're going to continue this um, uh, Dhamma study next Tuesday with. Uh, our a class on dependent origination. We're going to break up the chapter eight or week eight into two classes: one on dependent origination, one on five clinging aggregates. In between those two classes will be our midwinter retreat, which starts next Friday night. Uh, I think it's six o'clock, uh, either in our center if you can make it there, um, or online. We're going to have it if you're joining us at our center. Uh, the schedule and all the information is online, but we'll also be going out. Uh, as a sangha for uh, lunch and dinner on Saturday. Uh, so if you can join us, please join us there. And uh, 
let us let, let me know just uh, there's a registration process that's in the email just so I know how many people will be coming uh, and also our residential retreat is coming up um, please uh, register or reserve your space as soon as you can just it helps me uh, plan that uh, uh, that retreat as well that's April 28th to May 1st so we'll finish today as we always do with uh, meta. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta. Metta means loving kindness. From the Karaniya Metta Sutta. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.